Welcome to another episode of the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. I am Anthony Cazenza, joined as always by my co-host, John Sheeran. John, we are gearing up for not only the conclusion of the Bengals season, but we're gearing up for Christmas time. We're gearing up for Star Wars, Star Wars time. Oh, he's got, he's got the cap. He's got I, knew, cap. I knew I forgot something. There you go. In all the panic that was the getting set for the show pregame, you forgot the Santa hat. How you doing, bud? Uh, we, we've got Star Wars coming up. We got Christmas around the corner. How you do, how you doing? You 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 feeling it? You feeling the the spirit? I'm I'm doing well. But in like like I told Anthony before the show, I I um I, I tripped over some wires because I needed to tell my roommates <laughs> something before the show, and I and I like I tripped over wires, but also like stepped on something. I'm like, why why did I slip? And I think I just stepped on the Santa hat that I just put on. So I meant to put it on before the show. Then you're talking about Christmas stuff. Like, yep, it, it has to come on now. You uh, you do like the old school cartoon slip on a banana peel type of thing, but it was the same. same yeah, it had that the same. It had that same animation <laughs> where like my legs were running under me, like I was like Scooby Doo chasing away from something. Well, it's good to good to talk to you, man. I know uh, we've got we've got a lot on tap tonight, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna kick off the the week up leading up to Christmas and or Hanukkah. I think Hanukkah starts same day as Christmas Eve, if I'm not mistaken. So if you celebrate that. Um, happy Hanukkah as well. But the holiday season, we're kicking it off with our show. We're going to talk a little news and notes. There's a lot of things happening. This uh, this one in 13 team really knows how to keep things interesting. So we're going to we're going <laughs> to talk about that. John and I are going to uh, engage in a little debate regarding Joe Mixon and his long term future with the team, and we'll we'll kind of see how that goes. We'll be joined in about 20 to 30 minutes. By Billy Gomila of And the Valley Shook, which is the SB Nation LSU blog. He's going to continue our 2020 prospect watch as we look at Joe Burrow. We've already looked at Justin Herbert and Tua Tagovailoa. We did that last week on an extended version of the podcast. So we think this is well-timed to bring him on, given that Joe Burrow just won the Heisman. So uh, we're, we're excited to have him on. And then we'll conclude the show with our all decade team seeing as how sadly this decade is coming to a close. We're going to start with some of our picks for the Bengals all decade team, which I assume John, this is your baby. I assume that means 2010 through 2019, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. um, we will be doing that and uh, getting out of here, but I'm already talking about getting out of here. We haven't even started yet. Let's uh, let's talk some news and notes. I guess we can start here, John. Let's let's talk AJ Green on our last listener questions episode. You know, we were asked, "What's what's the deal? What's the deal?" And it seems like every time we do a listener questions episode, that, that's the prevailing question: What is going on with AJ Green? Well, he saw a foot specialist. It sounds as if he's not going to see the field. I mean, who knows at this point definitively? But it sounds like, in all likelihood, he is not going to see the field at all this year. Now there's the looking to the future and what's ahead for the contract negotiations for AJ Green. He said there's kind of some conflicting comments and all this kind of stuff. I guess you know I'll take the franchise tag. I'll take. I want the long term deal. I don't know. There's a lot to sift out here. What 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 are you making of all of this? So I think he said that um, when he got back from meeting Dr. Robert Anderson, who was this foot. The foot specialist, he sought out last year when he was dealing with the foot injury that took him out for half the, half the year. He sought out this meeting. This was like a pre-planned meeting, according to Paul Denner Jr., and about how he was just checking up on the progress of his foot. And the fact of the matter is, if you're seeing a foot specialist, 
two games left to go and you haven't played at all during the season, the odds of you playing for the remaining two games is very slim at best. So then he said uh, when he got back on Tuesday to Jeff Hobson, I'm probably not going to play the last two games. And then today, Wednesday, uh, before their Week 16 match with the Dolphins, he said, yeah, I'm just not going to play the next two games. He basically definitively said that. Um, for some reason, the Bengals are not putting him, putting him on IR or they're just keeping him on the active roster, listing him as out on the injury report. And then there were, there was a report from Tyler Dragon of the Inquirer saying that if they don't come to, into terms of the deal, they're not going to let him hit free agency. They're going to put the franchise tag on him. AJ's response to that was, was like, I understand that because, you know, I haven't played in a year and a half, basically, and I'm 32 years old and whatnot. And I understand the business side of it, but you also don't understand that I didn't go through all this. I didn't make sure that I was, you know, not ready to come back 100% just to play under the franchise tech because that's more financial insecurity that AJ doesn't want to go through. He didn't want to play through an injury that could potentially hinder his final big deal. And that was a talking point that he also mentioned when talking to reporters this week and how this last deal, he's going to turn 32 years old next year. And if he signs a deal, it's probably going to be the last major multi-year extension with you know guaranteed money up in the tens of millions of dollars. So he wants to be right for it. He wants to be 100%. He wants to make sure that when he steps onto the field, he's not worrying about re-nagging that injury and hindering his financial security going forward. So I, I, I understand his headspace here. I understand why he wouldn't want to play on the tag because after going through what he's gone through over the past year and a half, there's no reason for him to play on just a one-year deal. I'll be at a fully guaranteed deal. But it makes total sense why he would want to preserve himself through OTAs, through training camp, because there's no reason why he did all this to sacrifice, you know, all that current pay for the future pay and then to not end up with any future pay at all. So I do think that they're probably going to tag him. But I do think that if, you know, they don't use the tag that often. And what we see throughout the NFL nowadays is that when a player gets tagged more times than not, they'll come to an agreement before training camp starts. And And I believe that is something that we can expect in Cincinnati with AJ Green because I do think that both sides still want to get a deal. But obviously, you have to understand both sides. You, you understand why the Bengals would want to tag AJ Green because he hasn't played that much in the past two years. He is getting that old uh, up there in age. But you also understand why AJ wouldn't want to put himself in that situation after what he's gone through the past year. So here's here's an interesting comment by Joel Rampello in our live Facebook chat. By the way, uh, thanks for joining us live for, for those of you who are joining us live. And if you are, are getting the show after the fact, please do join us live. Um, if you're, if, and when you're able, but he, he says, I feel betrayed by AJ. And I, I guess I understand some of that sentiment a little bit just because it's been so wishy-washy this year in terms of will play, won't play. And, and some people think that, you know, he's, he's maybe milking this because of the business side. I mean, I, whatever, but I would not feel betrayed because AJ Green has made it clear, John, yeah. through this process that even though he doesn't want the franchise tag and he wants a long-term deal, he wants to stay in Cincinnati. So, I mean, that to me shows – that should, doesn't show betrayal. That should show that he's loyal to this team and, and a team that's not – that's the worst in the league right now in terms of its record. So, to me, I don't understand the betrayal side uh, feeling of that. And, you know, to his credit, and I think a little bit to to what you said there, John, I think A.J. Green said that, you know, he's not, he's not, he'll take the tag, but he's not going to show up for offseason stuff um, if if that's his thing. And I I think it's because he doesn't want to risk further injury on a risky deal. Yeah, and like that, that's that's the whole reason why he didn't play 100% this year because he's on a one-year deal and then you're putting him on another one-year deal. You know he's not going right. to impose himself any different. He's going to have the same mentality until I have financial security. I'm not putting myself at risk. And but like you said, his message throughout this 
entire process, at least from his side, has always been clear. He was always like, I'm not coming back until I'm 100%. The one time he did practice, he did think he was close to coming back. He did think he was ready to come back. When he had that setback, when he had that swelling in his ankle, he shut himself back down again, put himself back on the rehab. There's there's no reason to feel like AJ's not loyal to this team because another thing that he said, he keeps reiterating, I want to stay here. I want to make a legacy here. I want to stay with one team. I want to break all the records. This is something that we've known for years now. Like this is, again, we talk, we've talked we talked about this on multiple shows last time, and I don't think the fans are quite getting this. This is the same AJ Green that we've come to know and love. He has the same mentality for this team, for this organization, but he understands that he can't put himself at risk. And that's a thing that I don't think a lot of fans realize. These are still human beings worrying about their own financial security. And it's all relative because he's made, you know, you know, tens of millions of dollars in, in the, over the course of his career. And he's had a very successful career, but this is his last chance to really get a big payday. And he's being very smart about it to make sure that he does end up getting that payday. So his message has always been consistent. It's been the same. So there's no reason to feel that betrayal because betrayal implies that something is shocking. Something It's like a change of events. It, it's right. a change of narrative. And we've had none of that from his side. Right. Uh, I expect, and it is, I, I tweeted this out. I expect the Bengals to, uh, especially if for some reason they do not get a deal done in what's left of December, January, and February, I expect them to use the franchise tag on him, even if temporarily to parlay it into a long-term deal. And they should, if they were not going to trade him at the deadline this last year, you have to expect that this was kind of how things were going to progress or devolve, however you want to look at it. Um, you know, if you're, if you're not going to trade him at the deadline and your plan is to hang on to him, you're going to try and work out a deal that that makes sense for both sides, but it may take a temporary usage of the franchise tag. And if things get way out of control in terms of we're too far apart on a deal, then maybe you explore a trade to get something in return by placing the franchise tag on them. Before we move on, John, to uh, some more news and notes for the Cincinnati Bengals, what, what would you think is kind of, as we sit at this point, in the off or heading to the off season, what do you think is kind of a fair deal ish? I mean, ballpark for AJ green. That's, that's, you know, he, he says he's got four or five elite years left. Personally speaking, I see a three year contract, uh, maybe an incentive laid in that he can make a lot of money. That kind of makes sense for me. I don't know about you. What do you think? There's no question that his value has diminished and he can't feel happy about that. And it makes all the more sense why he would want to make sure he gets whatever deal he can get. And I still think that in a sense, there is some leverage on his side because of the way the Bengals have you know, dug into the sand that we're not trading you. We're not letting you go. We want to come to a deal. So it's not going to be upwards towards 20 million which i think where the market is going for receivers because those are specifically receivers in the mid in their mid-20s going into their second contract it's not going to be what we saw for michael thomas or even odell beckham jr for that matter it's going to be somewhere i think a little bit more than what he made in his first uh, uh extension back in 2015 at 15 million range going to be i would say in the 16 to 18 million range i think it's just a slight raise from what he got right. not necessarily a raise considering the, the increase in the salary cap and where the market for the position is because he is honestly this is going to be his third contract now. He is entering his, his thirty age thirty two season. He is coming off of two injuries that have incap and incapacitated him for the past one and a half seasons. All those factors play in, and he realizes that his value, to an extent, has has shaken. But they're not going to give him less than one than the one he originally made. So it's not going to be where the market is, but it's not going to be less than fifteen million. So it's going to be, I think, in that sixteen to seventeen, maybe maybe four years. I I think three is is the is the common guess that's going on right now. 
and a guaranteed percentage of maybe around like 40%, like you said, with a lot of incentives. They like to make sure that, that you know, those, those contracts are front-loaded so they get the guaranteed money out of the way early, and I think that's yeah. going to be the same case for AJ. Yeah, and I think I think he's going to want that. I think he's going to want that that guaranteed money up front. Um, you know, given what's transpired the past few years for him in terms of injuries, quickly, um, Cincinnati only had one. Uh, actually, somewhat surprising in the positive way. Cincinnati only had one Pro Bowl uh, designee in Geno Atkins. Uh, had it's statistically one of his lower end seasons, but you know, kind of had some other stats and whatnot behind the scenes that, you know, showed that that doesn't paint the whole picture if you kind of look at the major areas. But Geno Atkins makes makes the Pro Bowl, uh, eight Pro Bowls the most by any Bengals defensive player. Your thoughts on him, his season, and his making the Pro Bowl? Since, I think, week six, when people started freaking out about, you know, where's Geno Atkins, his impact has been, has been marginal or just not noticeable. He's been, I think, in the top five or six in terms of pressures, according to Pro Football Focus, for starting defensive interior players. So, And he's maintained that status all the way up until week 14. So I think he got in mostly because of the coaches and players, not necessarily from the fan votes. So we got a lot of help from that. And obviously the fan votes, you know, they, they, they go for the more bigger name guys like Aaron Donald and such. But his production has has been borderline pro, pro Bowl level this year. And, you know, you, you think for a team that's one in 13 on one of the worst defenses in the NFL, there's not a lot of Pro Bowl talent there. But he's still playing at a high level. And it's hard because the most part of the season, the Bengals have been down. They haven't been able to rush the pass that much. I think both him and Carlos Dunlap's uh, pass rushing snaps have been down relative to, you know, their more successful years. And that, that's been a problem for the past th- three or four years or so as well. So the Sack Hills haven't gotten back to that f- 2015 point for him or Carlos Dunlap, who's also, in my opinion, having a Pro Bowl year. He's been on fire for the, for the past four years. And I kind of wrote about that uh, today on CincyJungle.com. But I think both of them have been very good this year. And it's glad to see at least one of them get a Pro Bowl nod. And obviously, Gino is the guy that is more familiar with the process. This is his eighth Pro Bowl Definitely well-deserved. Um, uh, he's not going to make the All-Pro, and he probably doesn't deserve that distinction because I think there's definitely a handful of guys that are more uh, worthy of that honor this year. But I, I do think, you know, looking beyond sacks, the pressure rates, the the, the pass rush win rates, according to ESPN.com, that's the new stat that they're tracking. He's all in, in the high-end spectrum there. So definitely when you look beyond just the traditional stats, he's still having a Pro Bowl season, even on a bad team. Yeah, uh, eighth, eighth Pro Bowl for... For Geno Atkins, probably on pace to make the Hall of Fame, or should be uh, given given at least his statistics and those Pro Bowl nods. Joe Mixon was a fifth alternate at running back. Safety Brandon Wilson was a second alternate as a returner. I like what you said about Dunlap. You know, I think that uh, the last month he's been an insane player in terms of Pro Football Focus metrics and statistics that you can readily see. Um, you know, just just a great month of football for him. So those are some news and notes we wanted to touch on before we get to some other things. Um, those are some of the happenings with the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, A.J. Green contract talk as well as the Bengals having a Pro Bowl player going forward in Geno Atkins. Let's move on, John, for a little bit of a debate. We've got, we've got about 10, 15 minutes before our special guest comes on. So let's talk about one of the guys that was a an alternate for the Cincinnati Bengals at, in running back Joe Mixon. There's He has been another player who has really picked up his game the, over the past handful of weeks. Uh, he's had three 100-yard rushing performances in the past six weeks including two of his highest single-game rushing totals in his career. 
uh, the past past couple of weeks. So he has been running really well. Uh, some of it has to do with better scheming. Some of it has to do with his just his will. I mean, he is he is showing. There's a, a couple of plays last week, a couple of you know a couple of plays against the Browns, just broken plays where he has made something out of nothing, and he continues to do that. Here's the debate I want to talk about, John, because obviously there are there is a real stark line in the sand here. Um, th- there is the, you know, Joe Mixon, productive player, still young, you know, seems to have a lot of tread left on the tires, if you will. And then there's also the, you don't give a running back a second contract. Um, I know there are pros and cons to each. I know you've been a little bit more, and I don't want to paint you in a corner necessarily, but I know you've been a little bit in of late in the, you know, hey, Joe Mixon's producing, but it's not leading to wins. It's not leading to points. Um, I kind of wanted to engage in this debate a little bit as to what do the Bengals do long-term at running back and with Joe Mixon? He seems to be one of their best, you know, continually one of their best offensive players and still produces despite the injuries. But we know the issue of, paying running backs as they approach 30 and as they get more touches. So I guess I will say, what is your take in terms of the cons of the Bengals looking at extending Joe Mixon long-term? Because his rookie contract's coming up too. Yeah, and there's always two sides to the coin here. And just to preface this, like he has been amazing this year. He's specifically yeah. since the bye weeks, since they changed that that whole blocking scheme in the, in the running style, they've – uh, you know, formatted this offense to fit his strengths, which, you know, they should have done in the beginning to, to, to pr- properly evaluate the personnel that they had. But anyways, they, they got around to it and they've, you know, made this offense w- work for him. And he's had, I think, over 600 rushing yards since the bye week. He's on pace for over a thousand yards, which, you know, it's kind of an arbitrary benchmark to hit, but it's something that people, people will eat up. Most importantly, he's avoiding tackles and breaking tackles and getting yards after contact at a much higher rate than he has over the course of his career. I think he's had, I think, over three games now with at least five broken tackles. He's been a very much more elusive runner, and you can look at no better example than that running against the Patriots he had in the backfield, breaking like three or four tackles, going off for a 29-yard run. He's been one of the best running backs in the NFL over the past month. Unfortunately, though, since, since the bye week, in his over 100 rushing attempts and 600 yards, he's producing, on average, about... 0.00149 expected points added per play. Now, in layman's terms, it's basically like his, his massive production, his efficiency, which has definitely increased, has unfortunately not put the Bengals in optimal positions to score the ball compared to like, you know, just passing the ball on, on average. So despite how great Mixon has been playing, despite how much better he's looked in this offense, the offense is still averaging only 14 and a half points a game. And it shows that no matter how good your running game is, no matter how much improved it is, no matter how much you can build the the entire offense around the running game, it's not going to make it that much better unless you have a transcendent and unique offense like the Ravens. Right now, the Ravens are by and far away the most efficient running game in the NFL. They're like the only offense that's averaging more than 0.1 expected points added per, per, per rush. Basically, all the other decent rushing offenses are kind of clustered in the same way. And the only thing that's differentiating, differentiating those teams kind of in the middle of the pack in terms of rushing is just passing efficiency and passing efficiency is still the, the one, you know, differentiating factor that determines the good teams from the mediocre teams. So you can't be a great team just by rushing the ball alone. And that's why in general, in general principle, it's not wise to financially 
you know, accumulate all this money to pay one running back. And that's the argument against Joe Mixon. The other argument, though, is that he is only, I think, 23 years old. And this is a potentially a team that's going into, you know, a, a salary cap situation where you don't have to pay a quarterback a lot of money. When you have a starting quarterback on a rookie salary, then it opens up a lot of cap space for, you know, that running back's money. But in general, in just general principles about building a team, it's never wise to pay that much money towards a player that doesn't have that much of a positive impact on you scoring points and ultimately winning games. And despite how good Joe Mixon is, despite how whatever you know superlative you want to say about his talent, his overall impact does not does not have the same effect as I think the perception of it is, despite how talented he is and despite how much more efficient he has become. So one thing I want to bring up that kind of goes kind of my counterpoints here. One thing that goes in your corner, if you look at these numbers here, these statistics are for Le'Veon Bell. Le'Veon Bell is currently 27 years old, so he's not old necessarily by league standards, maybe up there a little bit in terms of running back age. Uh, You know, he's got basically, you know, three – uh, four, four more seasons. Well, three more seasons actually than Mixon because he sat out 2018. Um, but you look at what what Bell did with the Steelers and what is happening this year. And you can you can say you know obviously blocking is a big a scheme, blocking um, talent around him on the Jets, all of that. But age, right? I mean, if you look at the ages here, that's that's kind of the thing, right, John? I mean. Mm-hmm. The, the right around that 27, 28 years old, that's when running backs start to, you know, get a little bit of uh, that, that decline. And you can see here the emboldened, and this is courtesy of pro football reference, the emboldened rushing uh, attempts in 2017. Uh, it means he was, you know, he was up there in league leading the league touches 406. That wears a guy down. Now Mixon, you know, does split carries a little bit with Gio Bernard, um, so, you know, that, that, that limits it a little bit, but he's been getting the lion's share of the carries as of late. So, uh, you know, that's one thing to think about. Are, are, would you, well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Uh, let, let me, let me bring up some counterpoints here. And I, I love that you brought up some of the analytics and, and uh, they make sense. They point to it and it is risky to bring you know, it is risky to think about signing a running back for a three-year contract, four-year contract beyond their rookie deal. Like what, what you're seeing from Bell. That's why I brought him up. It's risky. It's risky. You know, he, he signed the big deal with the Jets and it's not paying off for him. And I, I really thought he would have been a good weapon for them. But, you know, I look at what he, his effort level, uh, I, I look at kind of the other not, the things you can't really gauge by some of the metrics, some of the statistics, you know, he's talking about, I hope AJ green is a teammate. He he tweeted this out. I hope AJ green remains a teammate for life with me, with the Bengals. He does a lot of things uh, with, with the team in the community. He has his own foundation uh, or or he, he works with other foundations rather. Um, He, he in a one win season exudes effort and he's really taken the leadership mantle. And, you know, I have to give him credit. I, I don't like to bring this whole thing up because I think it's in the in the past, but the ugly incident of him in college, he has seemingly moved far beyond that and has been a stark contrast from that behavior that we saw a handful of years ago. And he's been really a model teammate, model citizen. And um, 
you know, he's a guy that has been a valuable member of this team. And yeah, he's not, they're not yielding points. His production isn't necessarily yielding points, but I think that he has been a guy that has remained productive on this team's offense when the, the weapons are extremely limited. There's, you know, the injuries have piled up and he's still getting a hundred yards when they're stacking the box. He's still able to do that and create things out of nothing, create things out of this, uh, behind this poor offensive line. And I think that says something. And I also think John, additionally, I think that if you have a change at quarterback, if you have pieces that are healthy and Zach Taylor's offense running the way it should, where you utilize play action, he is doing his part. I have a post going up about Andy Dalton's scheme potentially showing more weaknesses of Andy Dalton. Uh, Zach Taylor's scheme showing more weaknesses of Andy, Andy Dalton because of what's asked of him at quarterback. What's being done is right now, Joe Mixon is creating yards and production to set up the play action and the passing game should be there. And I, it's not there. And I think that he could be a key going forward if you – use him the right way to set up the play action, which is what Zach Taylor wants out of this system. I see you. I see you grimacing. So I said something dumb. I I grimace because the, the whole, the run sets up the the past in terms of play action has been debunked. And I feel like that's still a narrative that we've yet to fully encompass as, as truth. And again, like I, I agree, but there's a lot of people commenting about, you know, Jim Mixon's a team first guy. We gotta, we gotta, you know, honor his loyalty. We got we got to respect the fact of the the team that he does, and we had to reward him for the type of team that he is. And you, you're right; he's said and done all the right things since he got to Cincinnati. He's been a model team. He's been a model player. He's someone that you want to have in your locker room. But in terms of just just putting on the GM's cap and just thinking about, we have a, a limited amount of salary cap space. We have to make sure that we put the best team out there, and we have to realize that despite you know all the talent and all the extraordinary abilities that he has that doesn't really separate him from other running backs in terms of just winning football games. And it's a, it's a very cold blooded pencil pushing approach. And I know a lot of people don't like it, but it's, it's, it's the reality of the situation. And time and time again, we see teams who sign these running backs to, you know, multi multi-year contracts and just don't get, they don't yield the returns that they expect to, because they realize that rushing production in terms of just overall efficiency is not that hard to emulate in terms of finding similar talents later in the draft and just able to plug out these running backs and, you know, limit their shelf lives and just run them into the ground and just go on and get the next one. So, the, again, it's not diminishing what who Joe Mixon is as a talent, as a person or anything. It's just the fact that he is plays a position that unfortunately doesn't yield positive results when you pump further investment in them, regardless of any extraordinary talents that he has. Because, unfortunately, the running back is the one position where you could be as talented a, 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 as ever – but in the modern NFL and today's NFL, when passing is king, it, it, it just doesn't mean that much as it used to. Good point, John. Uh, you know, if it, we're gonna we're gonna get to our special guest here in just a second, um, you know, before we do, just kind of to put a bow on this Joe Mixon debate, what would what would make you? Because you know, you mentioned free agency, what the Bengals do, what they don't do in free agency. This team operates differently in free agency. We've talked about that till they're blue in the face. You mentioned salary cap space. Usually, what they spend that salary cap space on is their own valued guys. So, uh, you know, chances are 
this would be one of those quote unquote core guys that they re-sign. What would make you comfortable in terms of a scenario to, to kind of finalize this, you know, this, this conversation, would it be, you know, franchise tag, short-term deal and move on from there? Would it be, you know, kind of what we talked about with AJ green, a three-year deal move on after that? Would it be, don't re-sign him at all uh, based on, based on things? What, what would make you the most comfortable, as you said, putting on your, your Santa slash GM hat? <laughs> um, it, it would be investing in Rodney Anderson and Travion Williams and mm. using Giovanni Bernard, who you already paid. Like, uh, it's gonna it's gonna be an impasse because if I were if I were forced to hand Joe Mixon an extension, it would be slightly larger than what Giovanni Bernard's getting paid. He's getting paid five and a half million per year. Joe Mixon's gonna want more than that. Every time a running back gets a multi year deal, like Ezekiel Elliott or David Johnson, he congratulates them. He put, puts the eye emojis. He's gonna want the biggest bag there is to be handed out for a running back. And maybe a team is gonna give it to him. Like the Jets were the one that they gave it to Le'Veon Bell. I don't think the Bengals are going to be the one to give it to, to Joe Mixon, but I do believe that is the money that he's going to be looking for, and that's not the money that I would be comfortable paying him. Another team, another team can be the first team to successfully sign a running back to a second contract and get the results that they want from him. And I just don't think it would be wise for the Bengals to be to try to be that first team, especially after already paying G.R. Bernard, especially having these running backs already in the room. You can scheme a running back positive results no matter where you invest in him. I just don't think it would be smart to do it, Joe Mixon. Well, that'll that'll wrap it up for now. It's a decision the Bengals don't don't need to make, fortunately, for a little while yet. Um, but it is something that's coming down the pike with Joe Mixon. This is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. He's John Sheeran. I'm Anthony Kazenza. We're going to get to our special guest in just a second here. If you are new to this show, please join us live via YouTube on the Orange and Black Insider YouTube channel or the Cincy Jungle Facebook live video feed. All of our stuff is on Cincy Jungle. You can also get the audio versions of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, Megaphone, iHeartRadio. Get it where you can. You can also get all of our stuff on YouTube and, as I mentioned, CincyJungle.com. So, as I mentioned at the at the beginning of the episode, we have been doing some 2020 prospect previews, prospect watch Last week we did, uh, we, we, we had a couple of guests on to help us preview Tua Tagovailoa as well as Justin Herbert. And now we've got Billy Gomila from uh, And the Valley Shook, which is SB Nation's LSU blog. Uh, Billy, how are you? Can you hear us? Yes, can you have fun? Everything's good. Doing great. Yeah, well, thanks for making the time. I know you got a lot going on. It's the holidays and whatnot. Uh, I, I wouldn't have probably pushed you to come on this week if it weren't for the fact that Joe, Joe Burrow just won the Heisman Trophy and did so in, in record-setting votes. So we appreciate the time. I'm just going to start off kind of easy, I guess, easy-ish question, which is one that we have asked the other uh, special guests to when they've helped us preview other exciting prospects. There are many, many... T- exciting traits about Joe Burrow, pocket presence, leadership, uh, accuracy, all of that. What would you say is his greatest asset as he looks to move into the NFL? You know, the biggest thing for him this year, and it was the thing that I I, I already felt that he had, he's a great decision maker, and he's he's always kind of just been – really in command of LSU from, from kind of the, the, the first 
time he stepped in. You know, he first game, uh, you know, uh, coming in as a transfer, Miami kind of starts a pregame scuffle, and, and, and Burrow was right up in the middle of it. You know, and, and then immediately talking trash to them about how you know about the kick their butt, and even when he was kind of struggling that first year, he he, he had this this knack for playing a game that would make you you come away you know not necessarily knowing the stats, having watched it live and think, oh, he played pretty well. And then you look at the stats, and he was right around fifty percent completions, or you know sometimes even under it. But you still felt like he played well because he would he would kind of just run the offense and, and keep keep things going. You know, he, he he took a long time to throw his first interception. He he would you know, throw balls away when they need to be thrown thrown away. He would you know take sacks in a situation where it was like, well, taking the sack is better than putting the ball up for grabs. Things like that, you know. And this summer, I think when I previewed the team, I said, well, here's the thing: we know he's got the intangibles. We know he's a tough kid. We know he's a leader. All that kind of stuff. It's what kind of you know. Where's his ceiling in the tangible department as a passer? And then he, he really just took off. You know, I was pretty confident that he would play well this year, that they would do well. I certainly never saw him coming out completing you know seventy six, seventy seven percent of his passes and and throwing him for you know damn near fifty touchdowns. <laughs> I, I never saw that in my wildest dreams and. It's one thing he's going to have, I think, that's going to serve him best in the NFL is that he's got, a, a, I think, a professional mindset, and he's a great he's a great decision maker, and he is always just kind of in command and in control of himself. Yeah, I don't think anybody really expected that monumental jump in production from you know sub sixty percent completion percentage to the NCAA record in completion percentage, and I think obviously the the, the number one thing people attribute that to is the hiring of Joe Brady to really, you know, turn over that entire offensive scheme. And just from just from someone who hasn't uh, fully watched LSU season and who hasn't been following him from, from week one, what has been the biggest difference in terms of what Brady has done to that offense? And it, it, not necessarily do you believe that all of Burrow's su- uh, success has been attributed to Brady, but what's really been like the biggest thing that, that has helped him, you know, transform that offense. What's been the biggest differences between last year and this year's, you know, construction of the offense? Well, the biggest thing is they, they just completely committed to the idea of, okay, we're going to be an up-tempo, no-huddle spread team. You know, LSU spends almost the entire game in the shotgun. They're, uh, they, they've been able to be a high-tempo team. They, they don't sub very much. They kind of just lean on what they've got, and they go, go, go. And we saw that in the spring game, and it was like, well, that looks different, all right. Uh, you know, whereas last year, they used more spread sets, more three-receiver sets, but they still went under center. They still used a little eye formation. They still used a lot of tight end looks. Uh, you know, it, it was still kind of in between what LSU had done before and what I think Ed Ogeron wanted them to be. And then I think Brady help kind of bring them those next couple steps. And, and he and, and Steve Ensminger, who was already here, just had just had a great relationship and, and worked really well together. And it, it, it all just kind of came together. It was the right situation with, with you know, the, the receivers kind of ascending. You had the right kind of just the moons all, uh, all kind of lines. You even had a running back who was kind of a more fit, more of a fit for that kind of offense, more of a scat back, a guy who could, you get the space and throw the ball to. 
Talking with Billy Gomila, head honcho over at And the Valley Shook, the SB Nation LSU blog, helping us preview Joe Burrow as we continue our 2020 prospect watch. Billy, uh, this is this is where I think there, there are a couple of points of contention for how great Burrow has looked, for how great the stats are, the record-breaking Heisman votes, all of that. There are a couple of points of contention in terms of his NFL trajectory. Uh, I think one of them has to be how close he is he is he a player that is just hitting his stride or is he a player and what we've seen uh, that is who is very close to what his NFL ceiling is or can be like is he still a developing player because of this one year wonder type of thing or one plus year wonder type of thing or uh, you know, is, 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 is he maxing out as he's entering the league? He is a little bit older than, you know, a Baker Mayfield, a Lamar Jackson who came in before him. Um, I would say physically. Sure. I mean, yeah, he's, he's never going to be the guy who is just going to overwhelm you with physical traits and, and his physical traits are better than I think people probably realize He's, he's certainly a, a better athlete than people realize. He's probably a better runner than even what LSU used him for. They really haven't had to use him very much as a runner this year. Um, but yeah, this is not, it's not a case where he's going to get he's just slap on another 10, 15 pounds of muscle, you know. Uh, physically, he's, he's definitely, I think, on the high end. And physically, it would have been my question coming this year as far as his NFL bona fides. Does he really have the kind of arm to to make the, the, the big-time throws that you need to make in the NFL? But I'll say this, for, for this year, he's been able to do that. He's been able to throw, you know, those touch passes over the middle, over the linebackers, but in front of the safeties, he's thrown. He's really been able to just drill slants and some tight coverage. Last year, we saw he could do, and I, and I hate to use the Drew Brees comparison, you know, just because it, it's Drew freaking Brees. But <laughs> the thing that he could do that Drew Brees has done better than any quarterback I've ever seen is throw that back shoulder throw down the sideline when the, when the, the yeah. defensive back's a little bit on the over, over the top of the receiver. You throw it just kind of behind him, and the receiver can just turn and get the ball. And Drew Brees has made a living being able to do that down the sidelines and then being able to do that down the seams. And right away we can see, okay, well, that, that's a throw that Joe can make pretty regularly. And this year, he, he, you know, they took that, but then he goes on to it so much. He's been, he's been a great deep ball thrower. He's been able to, you know, just lay it out there and let guys run underneath it. He's been able to make big crossing routes a, a staple of this offense. He's been able to really just drill those slants in. And, you know, this, is, this hasn't been an offense that's lived on just dinking and dunking and throwing short. They've thrown short, they've thrown long, they've thrown intermediate. They've kind of done a little bit of everything. And when you chart uh, Burroughs throws, he really makes each one fairly regularly. I don't know that there's a, a throw this year that's been a weakness for him. So the Washington professional football team did something really smart in this past draft, and they they paired Dwayne Haskins, the, their quarterback, with Terry McLaurin, the receiver, for, both from Ohio State. And obviously, you know, Haskins hasn't had a lot of success, but when he's had the most success, when he's thrown to McLaurin, he's been one of the best rookie receivers in the NFL. The LSU's got a couple of good receivers who are also draft eligible, uh, Jamar Chase and uh, uh, Jefferson, I think. So in, in terms of, 
you know, keep, keeping Burrow with one of his receivers, who, who's, who's out of those two guys is the guy that you want to see follow Burrow to the same team? Who do you think he can have the most success with uh, in, in the professional game? Billy Gomila of uh, and the Valley Shook SB Nation's LSU blog. We'll be talking with him for just another minute here. Um, we're getting, you know, some questions in uh, in our live chats from from listeners. I guess we'll kind of try to to blend a couple of them here. Basically, I, I don't know how familiar you are with the offense that Zach Taylor's attempting to run, and or the Rams ish offense. Um, but basically, I, I, an overarching theme that we're getting from some of our live listeners is what what can Joe Burrow bring in that style of offense and namely to the Cincinnati Bengals, uh, given his skill set? I mean, you mentioned, you know, maybe some limitations on the arm strength, uh, but great decision making skills, all of that. And, and you said he makes all the throws. I mean, what how do you see that? potential marriage playing out in terms of Burrow's skill set and what the Bengals want to do on offense? Well, I can't speak a lot to what the Bengals do this year, but I did get to see the Rams uh, in person twice last year against the Saints. And, you know, the, the thing that impressed me about them with, with, with you know, Sean McVay and Jared Goff is 
they found a way to, to fit what he wanted to do to what Jared Goff did well. And I think he figured out, and I think we want, he's not used to reading NFL-type defenses. So how do I make how do I make that easy for him? We're going to run a lot of play action. We're going to do a lot of shifts. We're going to do a lot of different stuff that's going to make the defense declare itself and give him easy decisions, and that's going to work for him. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's, it's a long-term plan, but it worked for him you know, for the last two years. I think if you put a, a guy like Burrow in an offense like that, he's absolutely going to shred because he, he can make the decisions. The easier you make it for him, I think we've seen this year, the more he can maximize what everybody around him can do. So I, I, I think I think the main concern that Bengals fans have with not not only investing in quarterback with the with the first overall pick is the is the whole perception about the Bengals and it, it itself and the state of their franchise right now and you know say they draft a quarterback first overall what's his reaction going to be coming into a franchise that is not very successful it's very much in a purgatory it's very much in in a, in a bad shape and the, I, the main concern would be you know if the quarterback comes in here and maybe doesn't really buy into what they're selling, doesn't buy into the whole process of, of starting anew and bringing a, a different culture to Cincinnati. Can you kind of speak upon just the Joe Burrow that you've come to know and the type of personality that he is and and his willingness to overcome adversity and the type of, you know, the character that he is to be willing to come into a bad situation and do the best that he can to kind of turn it around? Well, I don't blame your, your Bengals fans for feeling that way, just based on what I know of the franchise from the last few years. Um, you know, Joe Burrow kind of came to LSU. He was never really promised the job, even though that's what he was looking for in terms of, you know, he liked Ohio State. He wanted to go somewhere where he could play. And LSU was kind of in a situation where they didn't really, they weren't quite ready to turn the ball over to their next quarterback yet. They had, you know, it was, it was they were going to be stuck with some younger guys. The idea of having someone that, that had a little more experience, was a little more developed, you know, was more what they wanted to do. And I think they wanted to, to open things up a little bit, but they weren't. I don't want to say they didn't know how to. I, I, I don't think they were fully vested in, in what they needed to do yet and, and fully confident in their ability to do it yet. And, you know, Joe came in here. Coming from a spread offense, you know, he talked about how he had to kind of reteach himself how to take a snap from center, and he wasn't used to having to drop back and turn his back on the defense on a play action thing, things like that. And you never heard him complain. You never heard him really say anything negative. He kind of just embraced it. He embraced the team really quickly. I only recently found out that very quickly there were some veterans on that first, that 2018 team who kind of were like, who's this kid who's coming in here and thinks he's going to jump the line and take a starting job. And they had to be a little bit of a team meeting and Joe kind of had to stand up and say, look, I'm here to win football games. And if you guys have a problem with it, let's get this out. And eventually he just won them over just by being himself. So I, I think he's a guy who, is definitely going to bring a pro mindset to the NFL, which, I, which you know, I've been lucky enough to interview a lot of football players over the years and a lot of guys that have gone on to very successful pro careers. And 
the one thing that I take away from it is the guys who are the most successful for the longest time, the ones who can very much treat it like the way any of us treat any other job is that you go and you go into work, you do your work, you, you, you devote yourself to being the best player you could be. And I think we've seen that Joe Burrow will do that. Talking with Billy Gomila uh, of SB Nations and the Valley Shook, their LSU website. He's the head guy over there. Billy, before we get you out of here, I, I know my co-host hates doing these, but do you have a, a pro a pro comparison? We've heard Carson Wentz. Todd McShay recently said he heard some NFL scouts call him Andy Dalton, which was a very interesting um, analogy. Uh, some people say a taller Drew Brees. I don't know. What Do you have a pro pro comparison or someone that he reminds you of in terms of his play? I definitely see Carson Wentz didn't make a lot of sense to me because to me Carson Wentz was a guy who more physically jumped off the page a bit because he was a big strong yeah. guy you know playing at that smaller level at North Dakota. <laughs> Drew Brees kind of works in that he's a better athlete than you probably think he is. Uh, obviously, he's a little taller. Matt Ryan's not a bad comparison. Obviously, Matt Ryan's not much of a runner, but if you've ever you know seen the Falcons in person a lot, he is a guy that can get out the pocket by yeah. time, and that's kind of how I would describe Burrow's mobility a little more. Um, let me think. Maybe somebody like Jared Goff in terms of you know a little bit of mobility, tall guy. He doesn't have that kind of an arm quite quite like golf, but uh, you know, Drew Brees is probably the closest comparison I can think of in terms of being accurate, not necessarily being the guy who can power the ball into any window, but somehow still makes every throw that you can ask him to. Uh, whether whether he's got Drew Brees' overall ability to just be a machine for you know almost 20 years now, I, I, I don't know about that, but as a as a, an, a, a purely physical prospect, yeah, that's not a bad comparison. And Drew Brees wasn't a first round pick. No, he wasn't he was coming out of college either. He so. wasn't. Yeah, I've got I've got one, but I'm reluctant to say it, so I'll, I'll hold it to myself. But at at that being said, Billy, how can people follow you? Where where can they find your stuff? Uh, get in touch with you. Obviously, learn more about Joe Burrow, especially with the college football playoff coming up. Oh sure. Uh, we're at www.andthevalleyshook.com. We're, we're, today was uh, the, the first day of the early signing period for recruiting, so we're pretty packed in on that. Uh, but we're going to have lots of coverage of the playoffs coming up. And you know, one of our writers, Seth Galina, is a one of the better quarterback breakdown guys on Twitter. Uh, if you're a big NFL X and O guy, he's all over Twitter for that. He does a lot of our breakdowns in terms of that kind of stuff. And you can follow me on Twitter at ATVS underscore Chef Billy. Well, thanks for coming on, man. I know you had a lot going on, both uh, <laughs> wrangling the family and uh, doing some other things. I'm sorry I pestered you so much, but greatly, greatly appreciate you coming on and uh, making oh, some time happy for Happy to do it. Happy to do it. All right. Well, enjoy the college football playoff. Go go, Tigers, right? Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and have a good Christmas, man. Thanks. I'll have a Merry Christmas to you guys. All right. Take it easy. Uh, that was Billy Gomilla of – SB Nation, SB Nations, and the Valley Shook their LSU side. Good stuff from him. Um, I, I don't know. I, I you know I think it's kind of interesting, John, that he talked about how Carson Wentz is not really his 
comparison of choice. I think Matt Ryan's a positive one. Drew Brees, I, you know, I, I, the one I, I didn't want to really say, and I'm, I'm even hesitating a little bit, but as I've come around a bit more and watch more of Joe Burrow, I see, I don't know, man, I see elements of Peyton Manning. I do. I mean, he's got more. Wow. He doesn't have the elite arm. Um, he's got the leadership. He's got the headiness. He's got the ability to move in the pocket. I see it. Um, I don't know. I don't think the ceiling's there, but I, I see elements of him in his in his play. It's it's such a high end com- comparison because he painting was like he was the absolute consummate general. He was it, it, the ball was always going to be an accurate spot. It was always going to be where it was supposed yep. to be. He had total complete command of the pocket, and obviously that that didn't happen overnight. He had a he had a rough a uh, few like first four years in the NFL before he really exploded. But like, yeah, if what the maximum he could be, yeah, sure. Um, I, I think the comps that are best right now are like Tony Romo and the Matt Ryan spectrum where yeah. they were never, they were never the best. They were never the upper echelon, but they're always teetering in, in the above average area. You could always win because of them. And they're always efficient at their peak. And I think Romo is, is going to go down as one of the more underrated quarterbacks in the NFL because he didn't have the greatest postseason success. And I think Ryan's, Overall reputation would be a lot better had they just been the Patriots in that Super Bowl. But both of them were extremely accurate passers. They could manipulate the pocket, and they were just above average for pretty much everything. They didn't have really a standout trait, and I think that is going to be what Joe Burrow's you know gravestone in terms of a draft prospect is. He's the the jack of all trades, but he's above average instead of just good. Not you know he he's not just good at everything. He's above he's pretty good at everything, but he's not doesn't have that elite trait, which I think a lot of people are still backing off on him about because he doesn't have the elite armor, elite athleticism. Right. And, and I guess where I'm going with that, and I don't, I, that's why I, did, I was reluctant to say that because I know when you say that name, you're going, Oh, you know, but I, I'm, I see elements of it in that Peyton didn't have the Aaron Rodgers arm. He didn't have, you know, he had a good arm, but what he did is he threw to spots. He knew defenses so well in and out what teams do. He knew his own offense and what they do, their strengths, their weaknesses, he knew that so well and in and out that he had the high completion percentage. He was able to throw to spots and get, you know, throw guys open, if you will. And, and, you know, over basically overcompensate for not having the laser arm by, he had a good arm. There's no doubt. He had a very good arm, but it wasn't, you know, the wow arm. It was everything else, the intangibles, the intelligence, the maneuvering in the pocket, uh, those kinds of things is what made, you know, really what, what made Peyton Manning's career, what it was. And I see elements of that in Joe Burrow's game. It's, it's completely fair. And it's, it's the whole thing about comparisons where it's like people want, you know, something that, you know, compares to their ceiling, what what they can hit. It's really just about gauging what they do well, what they don't do well and and putting it into a scope that someone can wrap their head around. And so when people hear Peyton Manning, they're like, Oh, I don't know about that. So it's, it's, it's more about finding someone where the strengths we match and in a vacuum that does fit Peyton to an extent. Yeah. Well, thanks to Billy for joining us. He joins us courtesy of SB Nation um, and and their site. So great to have him on to help us learn a, a bit more about Joe Burrow as if we haven't been hearing so much about him. But we're getting the inside look uh, as we have on some of these prospects. We will continue our 2020 prospect watch with others coming down the pike. This is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. He's John Sheeran. I'm Anthony Cazenza. Get the audio versions of this podcast wherever you get your podcast you can subscribe to our channels please do including that on youtube get all of the stuff on cincyjungle.com and um yeah get in touch with us if you want we do listener questions episodes 
about two or three times a, a month. So almost every week. So send those our way if you would like and try and join us live for every recording of an episode that we do. So this show is is almost to a close, just like this decade is almost to a close. And I, I haven't done a lot of decade reflection. I don't know about you, Anthony, but I, I feel like this is a good time to start my Bengals decade reflection. So to close out this show, me and Anthony are going to go rapid fire back and forth, re- revealing our all 2010s Bengals decade team. It's a start for tonight because we knew we were going to be short on time. We're going to start on the offense because I don't think there's going to be that much deliberation about who makes this offense team. So I will start at quarterback, AJ McCarron. No, I'm just kidding. Andy Dalton. There's no, there's no competition. <laughs> well, there's no competition. And I know he's gotten a lot, you know, he's now in everybody's doghouse, but uh, well, at least most people's doghouse, but you know, production starts for the most part durability. And uh, you know, the five, the five postseason births were, he was a big part of that. Um, you know, you got to have at least a capable quarterback to, to be able to, to do that. So, uh, you know, whatever you think about Andy, he set franchise records and, you know, he was the, he was the quarterback of the decade. You can't talk about the 2010 Bengals without, without him. And it's more right. of a legacy thing, but it's, it's like, he's one of the top five Bengal quarterbacks of all time. And he yep. played most of the decade. So that that's it. Who you got running back? Who, uh, man. That's a tough one Uh, because you had like a lot of guys that were like, you know, you had said Benson for two years. You had Ben Jarvis Green Ellis, I think for two years, maybe three. You had Gio Bernard, but he was kind of the rotational guy. Um, And then you've only had Mixon for three. So, um, and uh, you know, some of his, some of his, I don't know, man. Uh, I'll go, I, you know what? I'll go with Geo and I'll go with Geo and I'll, I'll not only longevity, but I've said this before on this show and I've written about it. I, what he does in terms of versatility and it's not just receiving the ball and, and running the football. What he does as a pass blocker is often overlooked. He, he, for a smaller guy, he often gets in there, picks up blitzes. And unfortunately he, he is forced to do that, especially in recent years to help a patchwork offensive line and it's at the sacrifice of some of his statistics because he can't then go out on a passing route. He's not getting the ball. So, uh, you know, kind of a an all, all-encompassing, though the stats don't show it necessarily. I'll go with Gio. It's a good one, and it's the one that I heavily considered aside from my other one. So it's, it's kind of interesting how we, we differed on the Joe Mixon debate, and I'm going to go with Joe Mixon here just because he's, he's the most talented guy. And – I think that's number one. That's number one criteria we have for, for this, at least in my opinion. It's it's who would you rather you know build a team around, and you know the the rookie years of Joe Mixon. I I think he's shown to be the most talented back that they've had since Corey Dillon. It's fitting because he's number twenty eight and he's just the do it all back. And just like Gio, there is a sense of him being utilized in the passing game. And you know something that we don't talk about a lot is the fact that his first two years in the NFL, they, they heavily relied, just like you said, on Gio Bernard in pass protection when he came in on third down. Um, and he's done a great job there because Joe Mixon was not good at that. He was never good at pass protection in Oklahoma. And in his first two years, he was a liability there. He, he would constantly allow uh, blitz pickups to go through and he would fail to recognize them from time to time. He was just a liability and would force Gio to do more. Over the course of his third season, 2019, he's done a lot better than that. So he is is coming together as more of a complete back than he already was. 
and he's already the most talented back that they've had in a, a long time. So he's only been here three years, and he had a, a rough start to his rookie year, but he, you know, he did rebound 2018. He has rebounded in the back half of 2019. So the the, the production is not in terms of volume as much as Geo at this in sense, and he has been very volatile. But he is the most talented, and he is the most well-rounded. So I'm going to go with Jim Mixon. Okay, fair enough. All what, right, what's next? So. We, we, you can either do um, – we're just going to fill out this like a like a starting offense. So you can go three receivers, one tight end, or two receivers, two tight ends. I'm, so we'll start with the receivers. I'll go with three just because I think – Let's the, do that. Let's board, do it. Kind, of a, kind yeah. of a flex. Yeah, let's, yeah. yeah. The, 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 we're, we're going 11 personnel. Let's, so do, let's, yeah, yeah. let's do that. Yeah. Let's do two receivers, one tight end, and one flex. Let's do that. Uh, oh, okay, that, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, all right, so two receivers. AJ Green. Let's do uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is the this is the tough one. Um, I, I think I'm gonna have to use my flex on a receiver, but to give this receiver his due, I'm gonna go Tyler Boyd, and I, he was in competition with another receiver, and I'm giving it to Boyd because he came out in his rookie year and he flat out produced. He was very good in 2016. So it's tough for rookie receivers to come in and produce at an efficient rate, and that's what he did over the course of his entire rookie. Season. There wasn't there wasn't really a slow start for him at his second career game against Pittsburgh. I think he had around 70 receiving yards, looked really good playing it in the stadium that he played in, in college. Um, and just really took me by surprise because I didn't appreciate the prospect that he was coming out of pit. I really underestimated him as a prospect, and he really took me by surprise with how productive and how versatile he was going into this offense. And he had that rough 2017 season, but he proved momentum was real for some prospects. Going in from the second to third year, he really just blew up in 2018. And, you know, with A.J. Green beside him, he was his most efficient, but he just thrived in that slot role. And we've seen more, even more growth and progress in 2019. Unfortunately, he hasn't yielded a lot of success. But, you know, when Andy Dolan has been playing well, it's it's primarily because Tyler Boyd's been getting open and, and making great catches over the middle. So he's had a very consistent career aside from that lull in 2017. And he's been more of a receiver than I could have ever thought he was coming out of it. So I'll give him the credit he deserves here. I'm wavering on this on this one because Boyd, I really like what I've seen uh, out of him over the past couple of seasons, like you mentioned, and really statistically in terms of yardage, he's shown more than another guy I'm thinking of. I'm wavering between he and Marvin Jones. Um, I guess I'll go Boyd uh, reluctantly. I guess I will go Boyd because he has the 1,000-yard season um, and and more years accrued, especially with Marvin Jones missing 2014. Um, so I'll go with Tyler Boyd uh, somewhat reluctantly, and that's not an indictment of Boyd. It's more of you know how I felt about Marvin Jones and his productivity on this team. I wish that was a guy they kept long term, but um, you know I, it would have been great to keep him, Sanu, and even add Boyd to the mix along with Grammy. It just would have been great to keep those guys because. Jones and Sanu are still producing. So, uh, you know, I'll go with Boyd. I'll agree with you. But Jones is in the discussion for me. Mm -hmm. So who you got tied in? So I'm going to go. I'm going to go old school uh, with my with my tight end and flex position. I'm going to use two tight ends. Um, So for my flex, I'm going to go Tyler Eifert uh, because he is a versatile guy. He's a guy that, uh, you know, Despite all the injuries, he is he is a threat. He still is a threat. He's a red zone guy. I think he's been underutilized this year, but when he is healthy, he is awesome. Um, uh, this is gonna go. This is gonna go really unpopular, John. I'm gonna be really unpopular. I know. I know where you're going. I already know. Do you? Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm, uh, okay. I'm going number 84. I'm going Gresham. <laughs> uh, you know, a couple of Pro Bowls, even, even though he was kind of – you can laugh at maybe how those were um, – you know how those were earned. He had he had two with the Bengals. He had you got to figure before Jermaine Gresham was drafted in the first round. This team was very tight end averse, at least in the passing game. Uh, they had guys like Reggie Kelly. They tried to draft. They tried to bring in Brent Utech. He never did much uh, in terms of because of injuries and whatnot. But uh, so Ben Utech never really worked out. The Bengals needed kind of a guy to a security blanket for Carson Palmer. Um, he just a guy that, you know, can, can block a, a bit and can, can do, you know, can do some things in the passing game. I mean, you look 737 yards for a tight end. That's not bad. Uh, you know, 15 touchdowns, his first three years, the problem with him was just the play and clutch time. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, the Houston playoff game where he was supposedly, he, they made him inexplicably the focal point. Um, I never understood that call and, and drops and penalties, penalties, penalties. I get it. He was frustrating, but he was also a productive guy despite that. So I'm going to go flex Tyler Eifert, tight end Jermaine Gresham. And that was what I, a lot of Bengals fans wanted when they drafted Eifert because they already had Gresham. They're like, why are they drafting Eifert? They already have a decent tight end in Gresham. Maybe they're going to utilize what the Patriots are doing with Rob Rakowski and Aaron Hernandez and utilize two tight ends at the same time, but unfortunately that never really worked out. Um, but yeah, my tight end's gonna my tight end is gonna be Eifert. And I know the injuries really, you know, diminish his long-term legacy, but again, just in terms of pure talent, in terms of pure all-around ability, he's been their best guy. And I think he they've minimized his usage as a run blocker because they don't want to put him in precarious situations. They want to maximize his ability as a receiver and put him in more positions like that. But he's been their, one of their best run blockers that, you know, over the course of his career in terms of the tight end position, they, they've heavily relied on Uzoma, CG Uzoma and Tyler Croft when he was there in that department. And they never quite did the job that Eifert did. And that was something that was very underrated for him coming out of Notre Dame. Unfortunately, the, f- the fluky injuries have completely changed the perception and the plan of attack with him going forward. But when, fully utilized when not worrying about getting injured. He's been one of the more complete tight ends in the NFL. Unfortunately, just not been a lot of seasons for him to prove that. So I'm going to go with Eifert at my tight end and my flex is going to be Marvin Jones. And primarily because yes, it was, it was a, it was a colossal mistake to let him go in free agency to, to not give him the money that he deserves. He, you know, I don't think he's been injured this year, so he hasn't shown recent memory, but just in the the three seasons he's been in Detroit, he's been an an all-around great guy, an all-around great receiver in that offense to kind of revitalize what Matthew Stafford is. But just, like, he was that vertical, he was that vertical thread. Like, it was, it was him, AJ, and, and Muhammad Sanu, and it was like the revival of the Chad, TJ, and Chris Henry, you know, type era. And Marvin was the Chris Henry guy, but he was so much more than that. He was so much more of a complete receiver where Henry was just the, the main vertical threat. Jones had that vertical sense where he could stack the cornerback on the sideline, but he also had the jump ball ability to make contested catches, to go over the middle and, you know, touchdown machine uh, to, to a certain point. He had a lot of touchdowns in, in the prime of his Bengals career. The ankle injury in 2014 really, really hindered his overall production here, but a very talented receiver who was one of the biggest steals that this this yeah. era, era of Bengals team has has had as a fifth-round pick. I think it was the pick that they got when they traded Chad Johnson to the Patriots, so just a great trade-off there. So great, very talented guy, a guy that they should have extended and they should have rewarded and one of the better receivers of this decade. Yep, absolutely. Did you do your flex? Yeah, yeah, yeah Marvin, Marvin yeah. Jones is your flex. And, Marvin Jones, my flex. And Eifert's, Eifert's your tight end. Okay, 
Where are we going? All now? right. So we're going to go offensive line and to make this quick because there's really only so many options, <laughs> legitimate options that we can go. Especially so, because of recently. Yeah. Yeah. So well, how about Bobby Hart's right tackle? We know that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just go from left to right, and, I, and I'll, I'll say I'll, I'll, I'll say a name. I'll say mine, and if you disagree, then go ahead and, and take it over because I'll be not not mortified, but I'll be a little surprised if you go anything different from okay. left to right. So, right. left tackle Andrew Woodworth. Well, sure. wait a minute. Just kidding. Go ahead. Yeah. All right. <laughs> left guard Clint Bowling. Yep. Yep. Center Kyle Cook. We're good there. All right. I was, I was prepared to argue because the, the recent memory of Kyle Cook was that he really fell apart in 2013. All right. We're good. We're good. We're good. No, we're good. no. He, he was, I, you know, I, you know, I think that unfortunately this position has just been an absolute mess really since, since Rich Bram kind of, I mean, they had Cook, they had, remember they had Jeff Fain in there for a little bit. Yeah. Remember that? Yep. Uh, this, this position. And then, you know, we lived through the Bodine era. It's this position has been kind of a mess. Hopkins has been okay this year. Um, you know, and I, I before that, it's just, ugh. I mean, Billy price, another mess. Um, so yeah, I mean, cook, not an outstanding center, but just me. I mean, if you want to talk about throwback, throwback offensive lineman, just mean, 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 not really overly athletic, but, uh, you know, hey, they were productive under him, especially, you know, said Benson had a, had a thousand yard seasons behind him. They were able to do some things. So, yeah, Cook Cook would be my my pick there as well. And and I think Hopkins can be better. But when Cook was when Cook was good, he was an above average center. And See, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, was, it was unfortunately how, how his career ended and how fans were so relieved when they got rid of him for Bodine and how that's turned out. But, yeah, he, he deserves recognition for here. So Cook at center. Right guard, Kevin Zeiler, another guy that shouldn't leave. Right tackle, Andre Smith. Yep. Yeah. I mean, mean, that's – and if you actually think about (laughs) – for a while, when you have Andrew Whitworth, Clint Bowling, Kevin Zeiler, and a top end, uh, or a in his prime, Andre Smith, on that offensive line playing at the same time, that's a pretty damn good line, man. It was really good. And the fact that they – you know, that they allowed that thing to deteriorate and nosedive after, and granted Smith was up there in age. So, you know, you're going to have to cycle him out. Whitworth was getting up there in age, but he wasn't showing signs of slowing down, but they, they moved on from him and, you know, it's just, it's been a mess. You hope that, you know, Glenn, Jonah Williams and, and others can kind of pick up the pieces next year, but it has not been the same. And really that 2015 line was, was pretty dang good when you had, you know, those three guys playing those four guys really playing at a really high level. Yeah. And I don't know if it's more of the fact that, you know, they didn't resign most of those guys or the fact that the replacements were just so bad and they did a poor job of <laughs> drafting and developing because honestly, like, like you can look at like, like it, it's, it's the worst of both worlds because a lot of people will say that, you know, retaining specific individual offense alignment doesn't do you that good and keeping the whole group at, at a competent rate. But at the same time, like you have to be able to replace guys and find guys in the draft that are capable of coming in. And they just did the worst job possible of that. So it was like it was either just pay the money to Whitworth and Zyler or make sure that your replacements are good. And they did not. And that's why they ended up in the spot. Yeah, I'm hoping and I don't you know, I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver, but um, I'm hoping we can get a certain former Bengals 
offensive line coach on the show sometime soon and talk about that. That would be uh, a very interesting conversation with him. So maybe, maybe we'll do that. We've, Hey, we've had hit. We have his, we've had his protege, Willie Anderson on the show. So mm-hmm. maybe we'll get, maybe we'll get the old coach on there. So uh, who else? Did we miss anybody? Fullback? We didn't do fullback. Did we? That, that could fullback? have been our flex. Did, yeah. Have yeah. they had a fullback since Jeremy? Like they had James really. Connor and Orson Charles. That was it. Not real. I mean, bunch of Hewitt. They had an H back. Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. And uh, Jake Fisher. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I think I think we did. We got through all of it. So, um, yeah, there's your all decade team. Not too not too oh. shabby when you, especially when you look at when you kind of cherry pick a little. That's bit. an offense that Andy Dolan can thrive under. That's for sure. Yep. Yeah, uh, I guess next week we'll do defense, right, or special teams, or both, or how do you want it? This is your baby, dude. So how do you want to do it? Um, if we, I, I feel like we can combine them. Like special teams probably shouldn't take too long, but the, the defense, I feel like we're going to get into more of a more, more of a, a, a discussion in terms of who who makes that team still. That'll be interesting. Yeah. But yeah, especially in the the back seven, I think that mm-hmm. that'll be really interesting. So um, yeah, I think I think we should maybe combine it, especially since the new year. It'll be the last show before the new year. Um, we should, we should do it. Well, we thought we'd get done a little, a little, uh, quicker than, than we did this week, but, uh, Hey, we were quicker. We were shorter this week than we were last week. Last week was a long show, but, uh, this was a great episode. This was actually a a really fun episode talking Joe Burrow, talking Joe Mixon, talking Bengals all decade team, uh, really fun stuff. He's John Sheeran. I'm Anthony Cazenza, as I mentioned a couple of times during the show. Get the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Megaphone, wherever you get your audio podcast. Be sure to subscribe and leave a rating for us if you can. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Check out our videos. It's not just us and our weekly show, our listener questions and post-game reactions that are on our YouTube channel. Matt Minnick's Chalk Talk is also on our YouTube channel. And we also have Orange is the New Black a podcast that's on the SB Nation slate of podcasts that, on their channel. So check out all the stuff we're putting out there for you guys. It's been a lot. John, Merry Christmas, man. Uh, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to all of our listeners. Yeah. We could not do this without you. I love seeing the engagement on the live comments on the side. And I don't always agree with you guys. I don't always, um, you know, find your comments funny, even though they're supposed to be. But I, I love all every single one of you. Whatever holiday you guys are celebrating, have have a great end of 2019. Yep. To totally agree with those sentiments. I love the name. By the way, there's a guy, <laughs> there's a person in our live YouTube chat called butt hurt and it's B H U T T H E R T. I mean, that's just amazing. Uh, but he does say Merry Christmas. So Merry Christmas back at you and Merry Christmas to all of you. Happy new year. Happy Hanukkah, whatever it may be that you are celebrating. Uh, enjoy the holiday season. Um, do me a favor and don't try not to drive like a maniac today. I just, Maybe it's just Southern California, man. Oh my gosh, it's, it's definitely so. There. Oh my gosh, the drivers are just morons. Today was like almost in four accidents. Ridiculous. Um, that's my PSA. Anything else before uh, we get out of here, John? Um, oh else? yeah, there's, there's a game on Sunday. I guess it's, it's they're calling oh, yeah. it the Burrow Bowl. Well, I guess yeah, that. yeah. I mean, there's not much to talk about uh, on that. I guess as we preview, we, I mean. We wanted to talk uh, a little bit more. I mean, we could have talked about the Bengals getting their butts handed to them by the Patriots and, you know, all of that. But we, we figured we'd take a little bit of a different angle on this week's show. Yeah, I mean, this is, I guess, the Burrow Bowl coming up here. Um, Go Dolphins, question mark? Like, yeah. I, I mean, I don't, <laughs> it depends on where, where you're at with, with that. 
Um, you know, I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, ideally, I'd like to see the Bengals, you know, obviously win out, but still maintain that first overall pick if, you know, that the chances of that are a bit low. But, um, you know, stranger things have happened. Uh, I, I don't like rooting against them per se, but, you know, if it if if Joe Burrow is indeed a franchise changing player, you got to do what you can to get that guy. I will say that the Bengals can lose draft positioning. I want to, in case Mike Brown's listening out there somewhere, you can lose draft positioning and still move up and get a guy you want. That is a thing that is allowed in the NFL draft. In case you were wondering, um, Bengals don't like to do that though. No. <laughs> uh, well. Enjoy this weekend, John. I know you've got a lot going on. Uh, I, I, I do as well. But uh, enjoy some of the pre-holiday festivities and into the holidays. Just programming note for all of you, we will obviously not be recording our show on the usual Wednesday of next week because that is Christmas night. I think we've decided on Thursday night, right, John? Mm-hmm. Okay, so we'll be doing it Thursday night, the 26th. Um, so please join us that then. And uh, we'll see you in all the all the ways that we record. If not, download the program afterwards. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And our thanks to Billy Gomila of And the Valley Shook, the SB Nation's LSU blog. Thanks, guys. Happy holidays. Mm-hmm.